Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Sarah, and while I'm usually the producer on this podcast, today I'm sitting in the host seat to talk to David Renton, a leading legal aid housing and employment barrister and author of Jobs and Homes, a new book that documents the view from the front line of the housing crisis representing clients in courtrooms both physical and virtual during the pandemic. While we bunkered down into our homes, David was fighting to stop a panoply of clients from losing theirs, from Ronald, a 70-year-old who once worked with Sid James and was struggling with alcoholism, to Mr Vogel, who, suffering from PTSD, was facing court because the involuntary cries he made in the night were waking up his neighbours. As reviewer for Prospect Anna Minton says, Renton highlights the human stories that he encounters on a daily basis. Zooming out from the day-to-day life of in county courtrooms across London, David Renton has big and sometimes pretty radical ideas about reforming housing policy in the UK and on ensuring that everybody has access to justice. So David, thank you so much for joining us today. I just wanted to start by asking, what is the housing crisis to you and what made you decide to be drawn into this world of tackling the housing crisis frontline? Well, look, for me, how I came into it, it's really very simple. I'm a barrister. It's what I do for a living. Um, I could have done immigration law. I could have done crime. Um, it just so happened that I do housing and employment. So that means I represent workers and I represent tenants. Um, as for what the housing crisis is, I guess um, it boils down to this. Um, there are just way more um, people who need housing than there are spare houses. Now, we can go into why that happens. But for the moment, let's not worry about the why. Let's just worry about the what. Uh, the practical reality is, is that people are spending more of their money on rent. And particularly since COVID, lots of people can't afford their rent and they're absolutely terrified about losing their homes. During the course of your new book, you introduce us to loads of really human stories that kind of illustrate how this crisis is affecting people um, in the courts, including that of Ronald, who faced eviction because of his barking bull terrier at Guinness. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about Ronald's story? Yeah, sure. Um, look, the first thing to say about Ronald is that when I came across him, he was actually quite elderly. Um, what I loved about him was his whole life, how he'd got to be there. He'd, um, he'd lived in South Africa. He'd been friends with Sid James from the Carry On films. He'd come over to England and um, over many, many years, he'd been in the same flat until eventually he was threatened with losing it. Um, there is a bit of sadness in this story. Um, 
he had a dog, um, Guinness, and you say that Guinness was barking at night and just causing chaos for all the other tenants. But basically, Ronald was saying, I can't let go of Guinness because um, sometime earlier, about 10 years before, he'd lost his own son um, as an adult, um, aged about 18, he died in a, in a road accident. So as far as he's concerned, he couldn't lose his dog. He couldn't have another bereavement. So he was more willing to lose his home, go out and sleep rough, even though he was quite old. And that would have been, you know, a real threat to his life. He was even willing to do that rather than give up his dog. So we came before the courts and um, it started off and we won some of the cases. Uh, one of the great ones involved um, his solicitor, Sue, who um, was so determined to get Guinness out of the flat that she was willing to abide by a court order that she would take Guinness. And what that meant is if she didn't take Guinness out of the, out of the flat, she could have lost, um, you know, she had to go back before the judge explains us. She could have been sent to jail if she'd failed to do that. So that was a big thing she was willing to do. And we bought um, Ronald more time that way by getting Guinness out for a bit of time. Unfortunately, Guinness came back. And that's really the case where I came, where I, I talk about in the book, because the practical reality was, was we put all the arguments to the judge. We said Ronald should be entitled to stay in his home, but the judge said no, evicted Ronald. And he actually died um, relatively soon afterwards. So that's what I talk about in the book. If you'll allow me to just add a very short coda. Um, now that I've started talking about the case, I'm going around, I, I, I did a, a meeting with, with Sue there and she came and said, you know, look, more happened after you described in the book. She went to Ronald's funeral and she actually met the neighbour who'd been making complaints about um, Ronald and about Guinness, which had called Ronald, Ronald to lose his time. So the neighbour went to Ronald's funeral. But the extraordinary thing, she wasn't, guilty or embarrassed or ashamed you know her complaints that had led this dog actually oh, like, Guinness was a great dog he always got on with my dog like, what on earth and she said I, I just never understood why he didn't get to see a lawyer because obviously if he had a lawyer he would have fought the case and there would have been no problem he'd have stayed and it's just like wow and, and maybe that's a kind of bit of a hint into one of the big themes of my book which is that um, in housing situations everyone's got to have integrity Lawyers have to have integrity, judges have to have integrity, sometimes even fellow tenants have to have integrity and be honest with themselves about what they're doing. That's really interesting. Um, and on the theme of another really memorable tenant from the book, um, you were talking about how there's kind of, your, you fear that the rise of remote courts and remote hearings due to the coronavirus pandemic can actually widen the justice gap and kind of widen the distance between the the person who is there trying to defend their home and the judge who is already existing in this highly legal, you know, technical world. Um, and one of the cases that really illustrates that, I think, was um, that of your client, Mr. Curley, who barely got a few words into his hearing before he was muted by the judge. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that hearing? Yeah, look, those sorts of things happen the whole time. Um, when the pandemic started, um, everything went online and it wasn't just courts, you know. I'm sure people listening to this, there'll be people in their offices who remember all the Zoom meetings they went to. Well, we had Microsoft Teams, bless us. And um, it's not been a great platform and it's caused all sorts of problems. Um, but the fundamental problem is a lot of the people I represent really just have very little indeed. They, you know, they're not people who've got computers or laptops in their own homes. Um, with the with the curlews, um, a lot of the case was about um, their young teenage son who'd been a bit of a tear away, although thankfully his behaviour had really improved. But but when the family started sitting down and saying, right, well, you'll be the barrister and you'll be engaged in the hearing, so, so we've got to have a screen. 
I mean, I remember talking to Mr. Curley, and, and basically the only way he could imagine being able to hear this this court here and having quiet was if he went out of his home, connected up his phone to his um, car, played the court hearing over the internal car speakers. I mean, what, what sort of privacy does that give him when anyone can walk past and hear his own court hearing about what's going to happen to him and his family? And then the most ludicrous thing of all is what what would have what would have happened if and which did happen in the middle of that hearing. Uh, the landlord suddenly made some point I, I wasn't expecting and started raising some complaint I didn't know about. Um, it, in essence, we were asking Mr Curlew, who was not the most um, digitally savvy person, while well, staring at the poor phone, having playing through the speakers, to open the chat function maybe and sort of type some message in that I could see and the other side couldn't see. And that just was never, ever going to happen. So I do have to say that, you know, we've had a lot of online hearings during COVID and, and still to some extent today. And some cases they're all right, but often they're just really not great. And I think something that you're highlighting in your book was that there is potential for that to become the new normal. Does that worry you at all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's um, all sorts of fantastic schemes for online courts to sell off more court buildings. Um, for example, the most beautiful court building in London, I know that shouldn't count for anything, but you know, it does a bit is the City of Mayor's Court, and that's currently um, up in line to be sold off next. Every time they sell off the building, it becomes redeveloped as flats, and that money, in theory, could pay to go over to pay for the digital infrastructure for all our new online courts. And it's just hearing centre by hearing centre, they're closing, and the distance people distances people have to travel, even without the online courts, where hearings are still taking place. You know, now it's not the court's 30 minutes from where you live and it's one bus ride away. Now it's an hour and it's three bus rides away. And then we're seeing that in terms of people not engaging with court and just the whole system slowly bit by bit falling apart. And how, what kind of impact does that have on justice? You know, if if we're talking about a system here that's bit by bit falling apart, if, you know, tomorrow somebody's facing eviction and they're facing losing their home, what's going to happen to them? Well, the practical reality is they'll lose their home and the practical reality is a portion of them and I gave the example Ronald will be people who've got um, who are disabled who've got very serious illnesses who are quite old and who just wouldn't be able to survive on the streets for any length of time at all um, there was a great piece of research which came out just a couple of weeks ago done by Maeve McLennigan and the uh, Bureau of Investigative um, Journalism and they looked at how long the average court hearing takes which results in someone losing their losing the possession of the home. And the average is less than five minutes. They describe um, cases where people were losing their homes in less than one minute. And given the importance of the issues, you know, think about some of the cases I've talked about already, you know, like, for example, the Curlews, they've got a disabled kid in the household. If they're evicted from their home for antisocial behaviour, no one else is going to rehouse that family. That's going to be causing knock-on impacts on... Um, social care, on all sorts of knock-on effects for decades after that decision is taken. And it shouldn't be something that's taken in a few minutes. So what kind of alternative do you think would work better? Okay, wow. Um, <laughs> um, some of the things which have happened, which I think are exciting. Um, during COVID, there was a re really big shift towards people setting up tenants' unions so people who rent, getting together, sharing information, sharing legal knowledge, working together to making sure that people weren't evicted. I thought that was really positive. Um, clearly, during COVID, it's, it's, it's brought to light that there's certain kinds of ways in which people get possession, and those need to be slowed down. The big headline one 
is section 21. I'm not going to go into, it take too long to explain, but just to say that is something which the government has been saying now for three years they're going to repeal and abolish. Well, they need to actually do it. And there are others too in terms of another one's called Grand Aiden. But behind all of these things, and we could talk about the changes to um, benefits and how bit by bit they're, make, they're, make, they're putting more and more people in the situation where they can't afford their rent. Basically, they're, they're five or six key legal reforms which everyone in the housing world knows and which could be enacted and would make the difference. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I've sort of given a flavour of them. They would change things. They would help. And talking of housing benefit, um, I actually wanted to kind of read back to you what you wrote in your book about that, because I thought it was such an interesting argument. So you're actually kind of questioning the fun- fundamental purpose of this benefit um, and arguing that the purpose of the benefit is no longer to protect the tenant, but rather to subsidise the landlord and to sustain house prices generally. Um, when in 2019, the housing benefit bill amounted to £22 billion, pounds, half of which went to private landlords, this this is a huge amount of money. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about how housing benefit works and why you feel this benefit has kind of changed purpose in this really dramatic way? Okay. How housing benefit used to work was that um, someone who, who um, couldn't afford to pay their own rent, maybe because they were on other benefits too, would come along and in those days it was paid by the local authority. And in the vast majority of cases, it just simply paid whatever the 100% rent was that that person had to pay. So. Um, there are other benefits, income support, job seekers allowance were to pay for their food, um, but housing benefit was to pay for their rent. Now it started going up really fast um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, rise in London house prices, the realisation amongst landlords that you could take a, a medium-sized house, break it down into smaller and smaller units, have people living, maybe 20 of them in a house, get people who were um, essentially likely to be homeless, get them in, put them through housing benefit, charge effectively as much rent as you like. So that, you know, there are people working that scam as landlords who, frankly, are taking single units. Um, I've seen properties where a home in the suburbs, originally four or five bedrooms, now a lot more, and those landlords are turning over £200,000 a year in housing benefit. Now, that's had an impact in terms of the result of that is that housing benefit is now an absolutely huge bill. It's such a very large part of total um, total welfare budget. What the government did under austerity, and people may remember David Cameron, George Osborne, I know this feels like 100 years ago, but basically what they did is they made four or five changes to housing benefit to try and reduce the um, reduce the expenditure on it. But none of them targeted landlords, they all targeted tenants. So they said, for example, you know, if someone's living by themselves, they couldn't have more than the total amount of housing benefit, and so on and so on and so on. And they've all created a situation where the housing benefit bill is just as large as it ever was. But there are lots and lots of tenants who, who are getting housing benefit or it's successful universal credit and can't afford to pay their rent. And somehow we need to just reverse the whole direction of those cuts. It shouldn't be, shouldn't have been, it shouldn't be about penalising tenants. Um, it should be, to some extent, about going after these landlords who've got 20, 30, 200 properties and saying, actually, we don't need to subsidise you to the extent that you're milking this system. So in your book, you mention one particularly memorable landlord called Mr Panayi, who you say earns more from his rental business than many chief executives of major banks earn. Can you tell us a little bit more about his story and how he came to be in this position? Mr Panayi, Panayi is um, a lovely guy. He, um, 
he owns a lot of properties along Easington's Caledonian Road, and he is definitely a bit of a personality in the area. I mean, I don't live that far away from him, um, or certainly from the, the homes he rents out. Um, he has been notorious over many years. There have been TV documentaries about him, all sorts of things. Um, the most famous thing he ever did was he started building these homes under Caledonian Road, which, you know, just imagine a, a London north-running road with shops on both sides and tower blocks behind him. And he started building these homes under the ground, tunnelling these homes, which had no natural light. And this just was a huge scandal. Uh, he's been investigated by all sorts of people. The council know him, know what he's up to, been determined to bring him to the book. Um, but, you know, the one thing I did for my book, because a lot of that story is in the public domain, you know, lots of newspapers have written about it. The one thing I did, which was a bit different, is I just looked up his company accounts and tried to work out how much he's making. And it's something like 500 properties. And the truth is, he turns over a profit on them because he's not spending a lot, a lot of money on repairs. He turns over more of a profit, as you say, um, than all bar six or seven chief executives of the largest FTSE 100 companies. You know, there are very few people who work for him. It's just all profit. And it's a real sign of how how absolutely um, upside down our system is that people who just simply are profiting on that scale are able to make such an enormous amount of money. And what would you have government do to kind of combat that massive inequality? Well, one of the ideas I've been talking about, I don't, it's not something I particularly talk about in the book. One thing I've been talking about, and this is a bit of a radical theory, but, you know, maybe the reason I didn't put it in the book is maybe it's a bit out there. But one of the ideas I've been thinking about is, couldn't we have something like a maximum rent? Couldn't we actually say, you know, we've got a, we've got a minimum wage and the minimum wage basically turns around and says, right, you know, it's £7.50 an hour or whatever it is, times 40 hours. There's a limit on how much you can earn on the minimum wage. And why don't we calculate a maximum rent based on that? You know, someone on the minimum wage shouldn't be um, expected to, to pay more than £100 per room per week or whatever the figures are. I'm not particularly tied to a particular one, but I'm just saying, if there is a rent which does not go up, then the people who'd really notice it are those ones who are treating housing like a factory condition, you know, treating other human beings like, like we're factory hens, frankly, and they wouldn't be able to make the super, super profits and making that, and that just shouldn't happen. Moving into the courtroom, um, you kind of mentioned that the kind of um, duality that you that exists for you personally as a lawyer, in that you're kind of speaking to the judge in a really legal language, and there's a lot of sort of um, old boys kind of tradition traditions around the legal system. But then you're representing clients who are not familiar with that world at all, and who might feel quite distant from it. How do you deal with that tension of you know existing in this highly formalistic and traditional world representing clients who are not moving in those parameters um well the first thing you need to fit in is what's what's the relationship between them and me and i'm when i do housing i'm a legal aid lawyer that means i'm representing people on legal aid so they're people who really don't have a lot of money um basically they're only in you can only get legal aid these days effectively if you're on benefits so i'm representing the people who are the poorest set of tenants out there and in truth, I guess I, I suppose I play up to that. You know, um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm someone who came from a relatively affluent and privileged background myself. Um, I often find when I'm in court that um, some of the judges, they'll sort of give me a bit of a look as if to say, you know, like, you know it, 
you've got to understand it from my point of view, because Mr. Renton, everyone in this room knows that in five years or in 10 years time, you're going to be sat on the same side of this desk as I am now. And you're going to be dealing with these nightmare tenants and you're going to be dealing with these nightmare landlords. And, you know, you've got to see it from my point of view. And the truth is, I suppose I play up to that a bit. Um, I certainly don't um, hide from that or, or, you know, I don't know, pretend to be something different. But it's not just about me. It's really about the clients. And I think the main thing that, that I'm doing, that I'm trying to explain in the book is how I think you represent people with integrity. And it's just about conveying the totality of people's situations. You know, just to give an example, yeah. A lot of my cases are about disrepair and they're about waters falling in and the tenants in terrible situation. And some barristers don't really like those cases because they're just about money. Why on earth would you fight about money, even for a tenant who's on benefits? And I was in a case on Friday and the tenant said to me, he was talking about what it was like being in a room and he's been there for two years and rain's been coming in and the landlord's not repaired the roof in all that time. And he started talking to me about the water coming in, the drip and the drip. And I said, well, you know, like, when it's raining, it must be really bad. He says, it's not just when it's raining. You know, you realise that the tempo of the water changes depending on the intensity of the rain outside. It sometimes it's really hard and fast. It means really hard and fast in his room in which he lives and sleeps. And that's just my job. My job is to, to have absolutely no fear about saying that to the judge, about forcing them to confront the reality of my client's situations. That, you know, because I'm a bit of a posh boy, because I am someone who's kind of an insider, therefore taking that freedom and not holding back and saying all of it and explaining all of it. And if I think the judge has got as any feeling in the judge's mind, they might make a decision which isn't favourable to my client, then forcing the judge, making it as difficult for them as possible to do that, and making them confront the reality of the lives of my clients lead. And would you ever move to the other side of the fence and become a judge? Uh, no. <laughs> um, just, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, I think I'm I'm a bit of a lefty and I think it's very difficult to do that, to be both. And I think, as it, you know, but, but again, precisely because I wouldn't do both again, that means that, that, that when I look at judges, I, I try to feel a lot of respect for them. You know, the good judges, um, it's a bit like, I don't know if, you know, this is probably a ludicrous example to think of, but I don't know if you remember... Um, um, oh, what was that? Um, that fantasy series that went on forever, the biggest grossing TV series of all time. The words gone out of my head. Song of Fire and Ice. Um, not Lord of the Rings. No, no, uh, George R. R. Martin. Oh, oh, um, um, not The Hunger Games. No, but you know the one I mean. Um, oh my gosh, I do know the one you mean. This is embarrassing. It is. Anyway, there's a moment. It's Game, Game of, of Thrones. Thrones. <laughs> right. There's a moment at Game of Thrones. So look, there, there's a senior moment for you, everyone listening. Anyway, there's a moment at Game of Thrones that starts where Jon Snow's there and he's got to kill someone. It's the first episode. And he's got his son. He's trying to explain to him the integrity of someone who rules and makes decisions. So look, if you're going to make a decision that someone's going to lose their life, you've got to be the one who executes them because it's going to be hard for you. And again, that's what I'm, that's kind of my attitude towards judges. If they're willing to actually make the decision, if they're willing to look my client in the eye when they're saying something that's unfavorable to my client, then I respect them. Because it's not easy. It's a tough thing they've got to do. And there are good judges. And a good judge is not simply about, you know, doing what I want. A good judge is about behaving with integrity, even when you do something which I or my, or I or my clients don't want. That's a very, very diplomatic and, and important point. Um, so I just want to kind of zoom out 
now and take a more bird's eye view on the housing crisis um, and look at a view that you put forward um, in your book, which is that Labour lost the general election in 2017 and 2019, um, partly because they weren't able to illustrate to voters and show voters that while tenants and landlords have competing interests, the same is not true of tenants and homeowners. What do you mean by this? I think the point I was trying to make wasn't so much tenants and homeowners, but homeowners and landlords. That's really the distinction which has never been brought out. Okay. How I try and put it like this, and this is a bit of a complex argument, so I'll try and do it as quickly as I can. Um, when you look back at Jeremy Corbyn, his whole success as a politician seems to be he spoke to the young people. He spoke to young people particularly oriented. If you look at the polls on how people were going to vote in the 2017-2019 elections by what kind of home they lived in, whether they owned it or whether they rented, there was a huge majority of tenants pro-Corbyn. And they felt like he was speaking to their situation. So then why did he lose? And the reason why he lost, it seems to me, is because actually most people in Britain aren't tenants. More people own their own home. So somehow you've got to get, um, if you're going to have progressive politics around housing, somehow you need to have a majority. And that majority has got to involve some homeowners. And I think some of that is about talking about generations. You know, it may be that um, you're a homeowner, maybe you're in your 50s or 60s, and maybe think, well, why on earth do I need to hear about tenants? You know, that's not my situation. I've not been there for 20 or 30 years but if you've got kids or grandkids how do you think they're going to live you know if you've got one home in the family you cannot pass that down from generation to generation to generation to fill up all the people as it goes down you can't or all you know you can't do it till your kids are 50 or 60 themselves so it's no use so somehow we have to have an idea that those homeowners who are saving up all their money who think they're putting money aside so their kids can pay for a deposit Kids don't need a deposit. What the kids need is a bit of housing justice now. So it's that sense of generational justice. And then once you start focusing on that, then you also get an idea that some of the people I was talking about earlier, those big landlords, are a major obstacle to um, tenant justice. You know, I, I am never going to say a bad word for a landlord who's got, they've got their own home and they rent out a room and someone's lodging with them. I'm never going to say a bad word about a a landlord who's got um, their own home and they literally, whatever they've inherited the house from their parents, and they only have one house and that's all they let them have. If they make some mistakes, I'm not going to criticise them. I get why they might have some difficulty. They're not the people I come across in my cases. The people I come across in my cases are these people who are hoarding hundreds and hundreds of homes, taking out vast profits and doing very little work, very little repairs. They're the people, I, I say, that you know, we, if we focus on them, then you can get to see homeowners to see that they have different interests from landlords. And finally, David Renton, I just want to ask you if there's a case in housing that sticks with you. One case. One case. Uh, (laughs) Um, One single housing case. Hmm. Okay. Um... The case I quote most in my judgments is a case called Ackerman and Livingston. And it's all about what do you do um, when someone's um, disabled, so they're protected by the Equality Act, and they might have to lose their home. And it was just a brilliant decision on, from Baroness Hale because it just talked about um, how things change once you get the Equality Act involved. Now, you know, I'm talking about disabled tenants. This would be true if someone's threatened with losing their home because they were black, because they were Irish. 
um, if they're threatened with losing their homes um, because it could be any different reason. But she just talks through in a really practical way about landlords, how landlords have to deal with that. And it's just, I don't know, maybe I should have brought it in quote somewhere because some of the individual sections, it's just poetry. But it is just a really lovely example. And it's one of those really rare things, you know, Probably everyone listening to this remembers Baroness Hale. You know, she was the woman with the spider brooch at the time of Brexit. Um, and she was quite a funny old judge. She hadn't judged for that long when she got promoted to the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, she'd actually been an academic. And there are very, very few judges who become academics. But one thing she um, understood in dozens of cases, and the one I brought along as Aiken Livingston today, but it could be lots of others, she just understood um, what it's like when people are in need, when women are in need, when people, families are in need, when people are in need and threatened to lose their home. And it just bits, puts a bit of a sort of tank trap in the way of landlords who are trying to force people out too quickly. So, yeah, that would be my case. Thank you so much, David, for joining us on the podcast today. You can read Anna Minton's review of David Renton's book, Jobs and Homes, on our website. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.